Hello, friends. It's delightful to see you again. Welcome back to the Gallery of Curiosities. I am once again your humble host and caretaker, Leopold. Tonight's exhibit is set during World War II and involves people who like to punch Nazis, an activity that gets my full-throated approval. Nazis should be punched early, often, and with great enthusiasm. Although even in the middle of war, love can bloom and grow like a flower from a crack in the sidewalk or fungus on a corpse. The story comes to us from Mark Orr, who lives in Middle Tennessee with his wife of 40 years, a couple of cats, a history degree, and way too many books. On his best days, he gets to play with his grandchildren, currently four, with the fifth expected by the end of 2021. His hard-boiled supernatural mystery novels, smarter than the average werewolf and dead women in love, are both available from Dark Recesses Press. He has recently returned to writing short stories, a form in which he had a small degree of success during the first decade or so of the current millennium. He is also scribing a bi-weekly column for HorrorAddicts.net under the moniker Historian of Horror. Without further ado, we present Morning Medusa by Mark Orr. We beached the e-boat we stole from the small German base on Crete and walked up the hill that was the most prominent feature of the tiny unnamed island. Gestapo chief Heinrich Himmler had let word get out that Hercules Club was supposed to be somewhere in that part of the Aegean Sea, and Major Wilmer Jensen and his elite squad, myself included, set out to snatch it up before the Nazis got their hand on it. Just another in a long series of similar missions. Bennett scanned the skies for stray recon planes while the Major and I stood on the bald knob and surveyed the terrain. There wasn't much to see. If there was a cave in which the club might have been hidden, the entrance wasn't visible from our vantage point. We did notice a tiny peninsula pointing toward the Greek mainland. Major Jensen told Bennett to keep his eyes peeled and crooked a finger at me. We walked down the slope and out onto the spit. He stopped short and stared at a cluster of statues at Land's End. It was a small group of what looked like German sailors, crouching close to the ground with their hands raised before their faces, their features contorted by what looked to me like horrified fascination. I'm no art critic, but they seemed extraordinarily well done. Too well done to be stuck on a lonely rock like this. They ought to have been in a museum. I turned and looked at the Major. He had his gaze locked onto the stone men. He muttered, Ila de las Estatuas. Sir? I asked. He shook himself and said, Never mind. There's nothing here. Nothing we need to see. We should move on to the next site. I followed him back up the slope, wondering what his hurry to get off that island might be. 
I wanted to know what kind of sculptor leaves a bunch of brand new, brilliantly executed statues out in the wind and rain to slowly erode away. I knew better than to ask the Major his opinion on that topic. I did forget my place long enough to start to suggest that we should cruise along the shoreline in the e-boat to check the rock faces at the edge of the water for small caves. He cut me off before I got more than a couple of words out. I told you, there's nothing here you need to see. Let's go. We collected Bennett and scrambled into the boat. Santos fired up the engine and pointed it across open water to the next island we were ordered to check. We got back to Malta before dark. The Major sent us ashore and told us to get a good night's sleep. He was going to stay on the boat and take care of a few chores before hitting the sack. I woke up after midnight and had to step out to the latrine. On the way back to the barracks, I glanced at the dock. There was no moon that night, so I had to look carefully, then walk over to be sure. The e-boat was gone. I woke the others and told them about the statues and the Major's impatience to leave the island and about the missing boat. We sat up all night, waiting for him to return. He finally wandered into the common room just after dawn, as disheveled as if he'd wrestled a harem in a Bob Hope movie. The lopsided grin he wore when he sauntered through the door faded away when he saw us arrayed on a semicircle of chairs. He spotted right off that we were waiting patiently for him to tell us a story, as we'd waited so many times before. He glared at us and tossed the ancient wooden club he bore into a corner. We stared back silently. Whatever force of personality Major Jensen possessed that usually backed us down had been expended in some strenuous activity during the long night. He plopped into the most comfortable seat in the room with a sigh, poured himself a tall glass full of scotch and lit a camel. He favored us with the closest thing to a bittersweet smile I ever saw on his face and began his tale. You lot all know I spent time in Nicaragua back in the 20s, fighting against the Sandinistas with what was then called the Unusual Circumstances Bureau. It didn't become the Supernatural Investigations Bureau until 1937, while I was off dealing with a renegade genie in Madagascar of all places. My old boss, George Steele, he dreamed that name up one night and sprang it on us when we got back with the lamp. We liked it, and it stuck. <coughs> right. Where was I all night? I've told you men about that disastrous mission I undertook in 1927, chasing a Devil's Island escapee through green hell and right onto the stone altar of a forgotten god, and how that damned basalt idol came to life and I lured it over a cliff to shatter on the rocks below, yes? You were with us when I told you that yarn, weren't you, Phillips? I thought so. Anyhow, I finally returned to our base, one half of me dead and the other half close to out of my mind. The boss took one look and decided it was time for me to be sent back to the States. There were things that he had to do to arrange that, so he found me a light-duty assignment to keep me occupied until he could get matters worked out. I'd had enough of Central America, so I didn't argue when he posted me on a tiny island off the coast, Isla de las Estatuas, as the first stage on my way home. Before you translate that, Drago, it means Island of the Statues. The family, who once lived in the only halfway habitable structure on the island, collected sculptures and set them out, here, there, and all over the estate. Some years after they died off, the Bureau leased the island and used it to track and intercept shipments of supplies to Sandino and his rebels. 
Since Sandino never got supplies by that route, it was deemed a duty so light as to be virtually non-existent. Perfect for the human train wreck I'd become. I didn't mind. I was content to stew in my own juices after what had happened in Costa Rica. I barely left the house the first month, and might not have done so then if I'd not drunk up my whole supply of liquor in the first three weeks. Eventually, I pulled myself together and made a show of watching the channel between me and the mainland at night. There was nothing to see. There never was anything to see except blue water flowing to and from the Caribbean. I gave up after another week and took to exploring my temporary home. The house was typical of that place and the earlier century in which it was built. I'd set up housekeeping in the intact southernmost wing. The other parts of the house were held up mostly by the hopes and wishes of whatever ghosts still lived there. I never saw one, but my experience has always been that any house from which the tenants vanished mysteriously retains psychic traces of those lost souls. I decided the tumble-down side must have been the family's favorite, as the bulk of the estate's statuary was congregated outside what was left of its walls. The few pieces on my side of the building were your standard copies of classical figures, down to a plaster Venus de Milo, probably cast within a few years of the original's discovery in 1820. She'd lost some definition over the decades, to put it mildly. Had I not seen the real Venus, stumbling around the Louvre, looking for her lost arms a few years before, I would likely have not recognized her. The other pieces on the south side were more of the same, nice in their day, but sadly worn by the tropical climate. The statues on the north side, though, were a whole nother thing. It wasn't just that they weren't simply copies of better-known works. They were completely intact, as if they'd been carved only a few years before. And the stone was harder than you'd normally find in that part of the world. I'm not sure how common marble is in Central America, but I somehow doubt the entire supply would have been enough to make up the stone population on the north side of this house. They looked to be the work of a master sculptor, taking his inspiration from living, moving subjects. The figures seemed to be about to jump off in all directions and, and run away from you, as if anyone who looked upon them frightened the living daylights out of them. They weren't classical subjects either. The figures were clothed in modern garments, or at least not togas and chitons. The ones closest to the house were dressed in finery from the late 18th century, breeches and cravats on the men, full skirts and mantillas on the women. Farther away, they wore frock coats and top hats and bonnets bedecked with ostrich feathers, each one exquisitely carved. All bore expressions of panic and postures of being on the verge of flight. Even the children seemed terrified. I recall one statue of a boy, maybe five years of age. Whoever carved the rock had so perfectly captured the fear in his tiny features, I wondered what had so perverted the artist's mind to even consider creating such an awful grimace. Even so, the skill with which even so horrific a set of works had been accomplished forced me to respect his artistry, even as I hoped to never meet anyone so warped in their mind and in their heart. Each night, after my cursory glance at the channel through which no vessels ever passed, I wandered farther and farther away from the house, admiring the repellent statues that marched in agonized postures into the jungle beyond the overgrown lawn and garden. During the days, I took to clearing vines and brush, discovering more statues the more I worked. Before long, it became an obsession to uncover every figure I could, an obsession that ended one night as I emerged from the forest onto the narrow finger of land that extended out into the calm water and pointed at the mainland. 
I remember it as a night of unnatural stillness and quiet. No breeze came in off the sea. No birds called. No monkeys chattered or howled. Even the insects were hushed. You've heard of the calm before the storm? That was it. My barometer had told me to expect a heavy blow, which was why I was so desperate to find the last of the sculptures. If a hurricane were indeed coming, it might take them away. I wanted to see them before they were lost. It was well that I did. There were two figures there on that last little piece of land, farthest away from me at the edge of the peninsula. A man in a frock coat, reeled back, arms raised, as if teetering on the edge before plunging into the sea beyond. The other one, nearer, facing the man about to fall, had the shape of a woman with a long, flowing skirt. The bodice was sleeveless, and her mass of hair hung down in a solid nimbus around her head. I paused and scanned the sky. There were no stars, and the light from the moon only penetrated the clouds enough that I could see the outlines of the two figures before me. I shook out a smoke and struck the match on the bark of a tree beside me. The woman flinched. Her head and left shoulder turned slightly toward me. Buenas noches, senorita, I stammered out in my very un-Spanish Hoosier accent. You're the American who lives in the big house on the hill, she responded in English. Her accent was strange, one I had never heard before. Her voice was soft as silk lingerie falling onto a carpeted floor and as seductive. It was a purr that drew one to it, but I'd been purred at by beings whose embrace did not match up with the delights promised. You've heard one or two of those tales. Sorry to disturb you, I said without moving any closer to her. I was under the impression that there was no one else living on the island. She moved gracefully to her right a few steps and sank down onto a stone bench that must have been installed back when the family who built the house first moved in. She never turned completely toward me, but kept her gaze on the frozen man and the sea beyond. I would prefer to keep my presence here a secret, if you don't mind. I don't mind a bit, I said. Have you been here long? Oh, so very long, she sighed. It seems like centuries. A little moonlight came through just then, enough that I could see her hair was arranged in thick braids all over her head, perhaps shoulder length. They fluttered a bit as I stood there, and I had a sudden urge to rush forward and see her face. I squelched that impulse. She clearly did not want to be disturbed, so I took my leave of her. A boat arrived the next day just before noon, bearing supplies. I resisted the temptation to ask about my mysterious cohabitant while the crew carried cases up the hill to my headquarters. You should hunker down, the captain told me. We're expecting a big storm tomorrow, maybe the day after. Won't be able to reach you. You're on your own. I told him I understood and thanked him for the whiskey. They left just before sunset. I hurried out through the jungle and reached the peninsula just as it got very dark. The moon was still shrouded, but I saw her standing where she had been before. I paused and admired her figure, outlined as it was against the luminescence of the water. It was more curvaceous than I had noticed the previous night, but I wasn't there to flirt. Well, not entirely, anyhow. Excuse me. I said to her back. Yes, she said without turning. There's a storm coming. She sighed. The kind of sigh that makes a man want to take a woman into his arms. I held back, though. As I said, experience had even then instilled in me a wariness of such enticements. Yes, she said at length. There is a storm coming. One of so many I've lived through. 
I suspect I shall live through this one, too. Well, if you need a place to ride it out, I said, there's plenty of room at the house. Ride it out, she said, as if she were turning the phrase over in her mind, examining it, figuring it out. Thank you, but I have a place to go. I will be quite safe. I glanced at the sky. The wind suddenly came up. Her long skirt fluttered, although her hair was still. Well, if you change your mind, I said, backing away, you know where to find me. Yes, I do. I left her there and made it back to the house before the first squall line arrived. I was unable to leave the cellar for three days. When I emerged, the house was covered in palm fronds, but as far as I could tell, intact. Some of the nearer statues were badly damaged, however. One or two were gone altogether. I spent the day clearing debris away from the doors and walkway I had to use to get out and about. It was full dark when I made my way to the only spot on the island where I thought I might find my mysterious neighbor. The air was still and almost as sultry as it was on the night of our first meeting. The moon was unobscured, a barely visible crescent among a myriad of stars. In what light it shed, I saw her standing there on the spit, a dark figure outlined in faint white. She stared out at the water, looking through the place where the statue of the falling man had been a few days before. Your friend seems to have taken a powder, I said at her back. I expected to hear sadness in her voice, but there was a lightness in it I had not heard before. She didn't exactly laugh, but I imagined there was a smile on her face. I have never heard that expression, she said, but I think I understand the sentiment. Yes, he has left me quite alone out here. The cad, I said. Her braids swayed in the dim light as she started to turn towards me. She didn't finish the movement. Perhaps he was jealous of my new suitor, she purred. She turned her head back around to face the sea. A suitor should know the name of the object of his affections, I said. She took a moment to answer. You may call me Emma. I gave her my name. She admitted she was happy to know me. She sat again, her back still to me. I found a rock behind me to plant myself on. I asked her where she was from. She raised a long arm toward the east. Very far, that direction, she said, then pointed north. And you are from there. I confessed to that truth. I would have liked to have visited America. The last family who lived here had magazines with pictures from America in them. They left them here when they went away. I still look at them. I'd love to show you my country, I said. It's a pretty impressive place. She sighed deeper and with a heavier weight of melancholy than I had ever heard before from her or anyone else. I wish you could. The Statue of Liberty must be something to behold. I would think you'd be sick to death of statues, I said. Her back stiffened and her braids seemed to flare out on her head. I am, she said, more coldly than she had spoken up to that point. I began to apologize, but she cut me off. No, I am the one who should be sorry. You could not know, and you have been nothing but a complete gentleman since we first met. You did not deserve to be spoken to in that manner. Her back and her hair relaxed again. When the silence grew uncomfortable, I cleared my throat and said, I got in some interesting cases of preserved foods just before the storm hit. If you're hungry, I'd be happy to exercise my skill at opening cans and heating the contents in what's left of the kitchen up there. She raised her arms to indicate the jungle around us. 
My wants are more than met by the natural world. Fruits, berries, and nuts fill my needs nicely, but I thank you for your kindness. Well then, I said as I stood, I'll take my leave of you. I've had a long, busy day and expect another one tomorrow. If you need anything, you know where to find me. I do, she purred as I turned away from her. And so she did. Something woke me late that night. A slight noise or a scent or a feeling I cannot attribute to any of the regular array of senses. I sat up in my bed and looked to the doors that opened onto the patio beyond. A female form cast a shadow into the room, lit from behind by the dim light from the waning moon. The chiaroscuro figure swayed gently in the breeze. I reached out and pulled aside the mosquito netting. She walked towards me and stood over me a long moment. She had piled her hair up on top of her head and wound a turban around it. She wore nothing else. I moved over and she slid into the bed beside me. I'm far too much of a gentleman to describe the events of that night. I'm sure you reprobates can fill in the picture in your own feverish minds. I will only say that she never let me disturb the turban she wore on her head. I was allowed to explore her face and her body with my hands, and I found them as soft and smooth and as perfectly shaped as I've ever known a woman's form and features to be. I came up with a pretty good idea of what she looked like, and that was more than enough for me. We lay there afterwards, basking in each other's warmth. I raised a hand to caress her cheek, and something stung my hand. She sat up and tucked a loose strand back under the turban while I clutched the wound. It burned like a coal that falls off the end of the cigarette, but deeper, down into the soft tissues. She grabbed my hand and clamped her mouth over the sore spot. She sucked at it, and my head reeled. I grew faint and remembered nothing else until just before dawn. I awoke and staggered out of my room and into the darkness outside. I stumbled down the path to the spit where we'd met before. I fell across the stone bench, half-conscious, and looked to the east as the light of the sun first colored the sea at the horizon. There was a boat out there on the water, a small craft with a white hull and a single triangular sail. I got to my feet and found the path down to the beach. Four new statues had appeared in the sand, sculptures of armed men charging forward like an invading force. I ran between them to the edge of the surf and stared at the boat. A lone figure stood in the stern. Emma. She lifted an arm to wave to me. Her hair writhed around her head. I thought it must have been ruffled by the breeze that filled the sail, forcing the boat farther out to sea. I waved back, then collapsed into the sand. I came to several days later in a hospital tent and our camp on the mainland. My boss came and sat by my bed to take my report. I found this note in your room, Steele said when I'd finished. He held it up and adjusted his glasses, cleared his throat. Thank you for your courtesy, he read. It has been so many years since a man was kind to me. I am sorry our evening did not end well. The bite you received on your hand will not be fatal, although you will take some time to recover. The same cannot be said of most of the men I have encountered in the course of my very long and unfortunate life. I wish I could stay with you and greet the dawn the way lovers should but you would not like what you saw in the light of day. Too bad, I said. I touched her face, explored it with my fingertips, and as near as I could tell, she was the most beautiful woman I've ever been with. He shrugged and continued reading. 
I walked down to our usual meeting place a few moments ago. I saw a boat sailing toward us. I fear you have enemies coming to hurt you. I will not let that happen. I will deal with this intrusion, and then I will move on to some other place where the world can be protected from my curse. I hope you think of me fondly from time to time, and know that not all monsters are as bad as people think. He lowered the paper. And what do you think she meant by that? He asked. I didn't answer. He pulled a photograph from inside his jacket and handed it to me. Is that the boat she was in? I took the picture and stared at it. A triangular sail lay on the water, port side of a whitewashed hull showing below the boom. We found it capsized over a hundred miles out, he said, after a squall passed through that part of the Caribbean and on towards the Leeward Islands. There were no signs of a survivor, and there was no land anywhere around it. She must have drowned. Or wants us to think she has, I said. I handed the photograph back to him. Maybe it's best if we do. Those four statues on the beach, he said. They weren't there when you arrived on the island. No, they weren't, I responded. How do you think they got there? What bit my hand, I asked. He leaned back in the chair. The doctor says it was a small venomous snake. He found traces of a neurotoxin like a cobra's, but someone had sucked most of it out. I guess I must have loosened her turban, I said. Just a little, just enough. Steele sat a long time before nodding and leaning forward. He was patting me on the shoulder. You'll be back home in a few days. I've arranged for you to recuperate at my place in Tennessee. He stood. You're a lucky man to have survived an encounter with her. I think we both have a good idea who that was. None of my dates ever had snakes for hair. I gave him the best grin I could muster. Luck is a family trait. He nodded and walked away. I let the grin fade. I calculated that I might not be able to rely on the old Jensen luck to save me if I ever ran into her again, which was a distinct possibility, given my chosen profession. It's not that I actively went looking for her, you understand. That would be foolhardy. But I did keep my eye out for any reports of suspicious statuary turning up in unexpected places. There were no such reports, as far as I've been able to discover for a very long time, until yesterday. I let myself think that Emma did drown in the sea. I hated to think so, but I had no reason to disbelieve it. I always considered it to be a terrible shame, though. Monster or not, she did me a good turn and deserved better than to end 3,000 years of misery and horror so alone and forgotten. The Major stubbed out his last smoke and rubbed his eyes. He drained his glass and told us he was going to hit the hay. No wonder you wanted us off that island, I said before he could get out of his seat. Believe it or not, you men do have some small useful role to play in winning this war. I couldn't risk losing even one of you. We appreciate that, Santos said. I'll see you found the club, Bennett pointed out. The Major eyed the artifact. Yes, I did, last night. On the same island you chased us off as fast as you could, I said. You went back there, you found it, and you found your Emma. He gave me a long stare before answering. Let's just say I'm no longer mourning her. And you're much too much of a gentleman to explain what you were up to for most of the night, I pointed out. I spent a good portion of it tracking down that blasted stick you bums were too lazy to fetch for yourselves, the Major growled. Whatever else I might have done has been on my own time and none of your damn business. He cleared his throat and stood. The plane for Tibet leaves at 1800 hours, he said. Get your cold weather gear packed and catch a few winks. We got a lot of work to do once we get there. Occult artifacts don't find themselves. We got to our feet and pointed our toes in the direction of our bunks. 
We were almost to the door when Bennett turned and said, Wait a minute, Venus de Milo did what? Drago yawned and stretched. Wandered around the Louvre looking for her arms. That's what he said, anyway. How did she manage that? Santos asked. The Major shook his head and shoved us out of the room. Another tale, boys, for another time. I would have done the same. It can hardly be called love without a sense of ever-present danger, after all. Who knows? Snake bites might be the ultimate aphrodisiac. Some of the neighborhood children were playing out in front of the gallery this evening, and they came across one of the snakes that make their home here. One of them asked me, Sir, is this snake poisonous? I gave it a glance and assured him, No, that snake's not poisonous at all. So the boy picks up the snake, which bites him, and the boy starts to spasm and foam at the mouth as the other kids look on in horror. I continue, but that snake is venomous. Poison is ingested or absorbed, while venom is injected. Never interrupt your elders in the middle of a sentence. Tonight's story was read for us by Jim Hodgson, a humorist from Atlanta, Georgia. He writes, produces, and acts in Bad Gladiator, a full-cast audio comedy set in ancient Rome. And now, friends, to send you off with one of my favorite traditional toasts. May the devil cut the toes off your foes, so that you may know them by their limping. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. All story copyrights remain with the authors. Music was sourced from filmmusic.io. This episode was produced in July of 2021. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. A tryst with a mythical beast, for lack of a better term, can be quite a mistake.